Robert Watson Watt was born in 1892. Born in the UK, the Scotsman eventually immigrated to Canada. He was the pioneer in radar technology. Winston Churchill credited him with saving Britain from the German warplanes. His technology helped locate incoming planes so they could be destroyed before bringing destruction. Newspaper headlines called Watson Watt the man who saved an entire nation. Today, his radar technology is used to forecast the weather, assist space vehicles when landing, ensure safe air and sea travel, and also calculate how fast cars are traveling. I was on the phone last week with a pastor friend of mine in Virginia, and he was talking while driving. He asked, have you seen those radar speed signs that tell you how fast you're traveling. Sometimes there are little trailers parked on the side of the road. I said yes. He continued, I just passed one, and it said I'm going 99.9 miles per hour. And I said, Fred, you need to slow down a little bit. He claims he was only going 35. But let's have a little confession time here. How many of you have ever received a speeding ticket? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I'm glad to know that I am among sinners. <laughs> you can thank Watson Watt for that. The technology he developed is used in modern-day radar guns. Now, I actually haven't received a speeding ticket in a year and a half, which, which, yeah, which may not seem praiseworthy to some of you, but for those of you that know me, you know that I, I used to get them all the time. Uh, growing up with my stepfather, he was the sheriff of our county, and I never learned to obey the speed limit. Uh, I've received speeding tickets in more states than some of you have ever visited. <laughs> uh, I, I am no longer allowed to take classes to erase my tickets in the state of Tennessee and the state of Kentucky <laughs> and the state of North Carolina. And I, and I blame Watson Watt, not my lead foot. Uh, my dad once received three tickets in one day by the same state trooper. My dad was even in different vehicles. By the third ticket, the trooper was like, Chuck, I thought that was you. And this, I came by speeding honestly. But I've been rehabilitated, thanks to my wife and some former elders saying that's probably not the best testimony for a pastor. So I, um, I no longer speed. And by that mean, I mean I no longer go 10 over. I just stick at about 8 or 9 consistently. <laughs> On uh, one occasion... At age 64, Watson Watt reportedly was pulled over in Canada for speeding by a radar gun-toting policeman. His wife was in the car and she tried to pull the, don't you know who you're giving a ticket to trick? My husband invented the technology that you just used to pull us over. The officer couldn't be swayed and he gave Watson Watt a $12.50 fine. Watson Watt told the officer, had I known you were going to do this, I would have never invented it. Robert Watson Watt was the victim of his own invention. After the encounter, he wrote an ironic poem entitled Rough Justice. The poem goes like this. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of this radar plot, and thus with others I can mention the victim of his own invention. His magical all-seeing eye enabled cloud-bound planes to fly. But now by some ironic twist, it spots the speeding motorist. 
and bites, no doubt with legal wit, the hand that once created it. In Esther 7, we have another account of a man becoming the victim of his own invention. Esther 7 is a crazy book. It's a wild chapter. It's, it's, a, it's a Mexican soap opera with Persian subtitles. There are four main characters in the drama. First, Xerxes, the unstable, insecure king of Persia, murdered his first queen and held a, the Bachelor Persia edition to find his next one. Then we're introduced to Mordecai, the backslidden Jew. Uh, using the language of uh, Blake Shelton, old Mordecai should have went back to God's country, but he tarried in Persia's version of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so he's in Satan's country. Then Esther comes on the scene. She's Haman's cousin, whom he adopted when her parents died. This orphan grew up and entered the international beauty pageant held by Xerxes. And at the end of the event, the host said, the winner is... Miss Columbia. And then Steve Harvey is like, my mistake. I read it wrong. <laughs> Esther is the winner. And I don't know what country she's from. But Esther's the winner. See, Esther kept her Jewishness secret. Now the orphan is the queen. Then enter the fourth character, the villain, Haman. Haman quickly climbed the Persian ladder and became prime minister. He was Hitler in seed form. He convinced the king through some wordsmithing to order the utter annihilation of every Jew in the land on a certain day. And that day is coming, but it hasn't arrived yet. Hitler, Haman, also hates the Jew Mordecai, and he can't wait until D-Day. So he goes to Lowe's, he buys a bunch of material, he erects gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai. Now imagine something this tall in Haman's front yard. He and his men built it in one night. Not a small task. If you've been to New York City in December, December, Haman built gallows the size of the Christmas tree at Rockefeller. A foot and a half difference. Everything had been going swimmingly for Haman until the morning after he constructed the gallows. In a crazy change of events, the king discovered that Mordecai saved him from an assassination attempt five years earlier, and he orders Haman to throw a Macy's Day parade for Mordecai. And Mordecai was the hero of the parade. He was like the Santa at the end, the celebrated one. And some of you have been waiting weeks for this day, for this chapter. You came in here saying, I know where we're going. That's why I'm here. What a great day. Haman gets hanged today. Well... Your enthusiasm scares me a bit, but yeah. Yeah, Proverbs 26, 27, in living color. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. Whoever starts rolling a stone will have that stone crush him. If Haman were a cartoon, he would be Wiley E. Coyote. Mordecai would be the Old Testament roadrunner. I introduced my oldest son to this cartoon yesterday. It changed his life. <laughs> The coyote is hungry for the blue meat of the roadrunner. And with every beep beep, the coyote gets further infuriated and redoubles his efforts to catch the uncatchable. He continually becomes the victim of his own invention. Whether, if, whether it's an anvil or a catapult, he creates a trap and then he suffers from his own trap. And I know you tend to identify with Mordecai and Esther. That's why you can't wait for me to hang Haman at the end of the chapter. 
But the heart problem of Haman is the heart problem of all of us. See, what happens is we love it when those evil people get it. But we're not so evil, so we shouldn't get it. We can see their sin more clearly than we can see our own. And that's dangerous. That's why you, those of you who are Christians, you must have a ruthless confession of your sinful heart. Now, so that we don't moralize the Old Testament, like be like Mordecai or don't be like Haman, let's look for the FCF. FCF, fallen condition focus. What in the fallenness of Haman is consistent with the fallenness in all of us? We, like Haman, are usually hanged on the gallows of our own making. We're consumed with bitterness over our parents and end up becoming just like them. We become so fixated on that person falling that our obsession clouds our own view and we trip and fall. We become so obsessed with having cars and houses and things that it's those very things that seek us, sink us into living a life riddled by debt. We become so obsessed with the marriage looking a certain way on the outside that it disintegrates from the inside. In church life, you can have all your theological T's crossed and your biblical I's dotted, but you forget to work that pristine theology into your heart and you become arrogant. Maybe it's your unquenchable thirst for a certain sin. It doesn't matter how many times that quest for that tasty blue meat drives you off a cliff. You must have your desire fulfilled. And you probably think I'm talking about some sort of addiction, but this is, this is not an addiction. This is more of an obsession. Non-Christians. I want you to hear me clearly. Nothing can change that about your heart except for Jesus Christ. And you must recognize your heart's evil intentions and go with repentance to the one who gives new hearts. You need a heart transplant, and Jesus Christ can give it. All right, we did a little flyover. Let's begin walking verse by verse through the chapter. There's three movements. Here's the breakdown. First, Esther spills the beans. Secondly, Haman spits out the steak. Thirdly, Xerxes feeds the birds. We'll take them one at a time. First, Esther spills the beans. The story picks up after the Macy's Day Parade. Haman, you remember, is covered in sackcloth and ashes. He's had a bad day, a crushing humiliation. The king's limousine pulled up and Haman is whisked away to Esther's second banquet. You may ask, why would Esther invite Haman to a banquet? Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. One almost gets the sense from the last verse of the previous chapter that Haman's being hurried away mid-sentence, utterly discombobulated, his mouth hanging open, sputtering in astonishment and outrage that he was the one that had to wear the elf hat while everyone clapped for Mordecai as he went by on the parade float. Verse 2 picks up close to the end of dinner. Notice what verse 2 says. And on that day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish? Queen Esther, it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
This is the third time Xerxes looked at Esther and said, Anything you want, you can have. I promise I'll grant your request. I don't care what the price tag is. She doesn't want trinkets or toys or property or stuff. She wants, verse 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Notice that Esther skillfully uses the passive voice in describing the, the edict. Esther begins the delicate and dangerous task of incriminating Haman. She spills the beans, but she can't get them everywhere. She needs only to implicate Haman and not the king. And notice the stunning argument. I wouldn't trouble you, king, with something as minor as the enslavement of an entire race, but this is the annihilation of an entire race. We're not being sold. We're going to be slain. We're not being kicked. We're going to be killed. We're not being... Merely beaten, but butchered. And then she quotes verbatim the edict against her people. We have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Word for word. And this is altogether stunning news for both men. And it may be stunning news to you that it's stunning news to them. Xerxes and Haman, they knew nothing of this. Neither one knows what people she speaks of. They don't know her heritage. Xerxes has been married to her for years, but he's like, you know, she always made Korean food. I just thought she was South Korean. I never bothered to ask. They're so self-absorbed, they still don't realize she's talking about them. And who knows how many edicts Xerxes signed that month. Who knows how many pressing matters of government were on his mind. He had countless decisions to make, countless edicts to write. The one about killing all the Jews was just one among many. Xerxes hears the news and he cannot believe what he's hearing. To threaten the queen's life is the height of treason. It is monstrous. Verse 5, Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? And who has dared to do this? Now, she could have said, do you have a mirror? You see that ugly mug in the reflection? That's who did this. But she's wiser than that. After he asked, who is it that wants to kill my wife, Esther continues her brief but skillful reply. She doesn't just blurt out Haman's name in verse 6. No. She continues to raise the tension and suspense with each word. In the Hebrew, her words ring out with staccato cadence. A man, hateful and hostile, hellish and horned, the horrible Haman. Immediately, Haman's face turns red as a candy apple. He spills wine all down his already disheveled robes. He begins to choke on the steak until he eventually spits it out of his mouth. For the first time, the realization strikes him. The queen is a Jew. 
He had no idea. This move was a masterstroke by the queen. The trap snaps shut and Haman was caught. Notice the king's response in verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from wine drinking and went into the palace garden. So picture the king storming out of the room in rage. He's hot, piping mad. He needs to think. One scholar believes the question circulating in Xerxes' mind is, can I punish Haman for a plot that I approved? Can he somehow protect Esther's life while at the same time protecting his own reputation? To paraphrase the great stockroom of theological wisdom, the sound of music, the problem facing Xerxes was, how do you solve a problem like Haman? The verse continues in verse 7. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. You see, in the Persian court, a man was forbidden from being left alone with a member of the king's harem, much less the queen. And even in the presence of the king, no one is permitted within seven steps of her. So if the queen is on the couch, she gets the whole couch. You don't walk up to the king, the queen and say, could you slide over a bit? Haman, by law, had to leave the room when the king left. So he has a split second to make a decision. Will he run for it, further cementing his guilt? Or will he follow the king out to the rose garden and try to convince him to spare his life? Having estimated that he stood no chance of mercy from the king, or from running, Haman decided to beg his life from the queen. And the Orientals reclined on couches at their feast. Haman, in typical Near Eastern fashion, probably grabbed the feet of Esther, kissed them, and begged for forgiveness. In other words, he looked her in the eyes and says, I, I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg and plead for your sympathy... I don't mind because you mean that much. Ain't too proud to beg. Maybe, maybe that was a song. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that was Hebrew. Apparently, she was pleading. Apparently, he was pleading to her, don't let him kill me. And in the plead, he fell on top of her. And at the exact same time, verse 8 happened. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence? In my own house? Now you have to remember that Xerxes is looking for a reason to kill Haman. And now he's found one. Haman has undeniably violated harem protocol, a serious affront to the king himself. It was culturally outrageous and civilly unacceptable. Touch the queen, friend, and you die. Most preachers, Alistair Begg included, agree that Haman was not trying to rape the queen. He wasn't assaulting her, but Xerxes created that impression. He made something look like it's not what it was. It was a convenient charge that diverted attention away from the real issue. He knows he can make this charge stick. Now, the, the Bible's over here, and I'm over here. What I'm about to say is, is not biblical authority. But some scholars teach 
that God created that impression in the mind of Xerxes. And one ancient account that's, that's uh, not inspired said that the angel Gabriel gave Haman a firm shove, sealing his fate, making him fall into the pit he dug, making him trip in front of the stone that he began to roll, crushing him with his own catapult. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. They drew the death hood. An assault on the queen is an assault on the king. And it will be dealt with. Esther spills the beans. Haman spits out the steak. Now Xerxes feeds the birds. Notice verse 9. Then Harbona. Now this may ring a bell to you. This is the same guy in chapter 1, verse 10, one of the king's eunuchs. And he says, King, did you realize that Haman was going to kill the man that saved your life? He actually set up this nice, shiny, glittering gallows in his subdivision. It has colorful lights on it, all different colors lit up like a Christmas tree. Verse 10. And the king said, Hang him on that. And I think some of the most piercing words of the book. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Now these gallows are not what you're picturing. Persian gallows were not gallows that you would find in the wild, wild west. Both from written witnesses and from excavated stone relics, we know that Persians built gallows that were wooden stakes where they impaled someone. So death by asphyxiation around the neck with a noose was not what the Persians did. They dropped Haman on a massive spear the size of a, a huge Christmas tree. And his body stayed for days for public display and bird consumption. Now, we're rounding third. Let's make our way home. I want to give you two applications. Application number one. Let's talk about chess, checkers, and the game of life. Now, you already know that God is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. Neither is Satan. But don't you doubt for a moment that they aren't both at work. They're both at play, but they're playing different games. Whenever my family and I go to Cracker Barrel, we play on those oversized checkerboards. It's, it's wonderful quality time with the kids. One at a time, I help them learn how to taste defeat. <laughs> and my oldest son is really competitive, and he's always wanting to play another game. I want to play another game, Dad. Let's play another game. Let's play another one. When I play his sister, he has a really hard time seeing her win. He says, Daddy, you're letting her win. You are letting her win. And I want him to learn. When you're playing a beautiful girl, it's wise sometimes to lose. <laughs> As my kids approach the game of checkers, they each approach the game differently. One always wants to jump with his king. Another just wants to talk over the game. It's never about the game. Another pictures those round checker pieces as a massive cookie and she wants to eat them. Some of them love the game of checkers. Some of them could care less. You know who really loves checkers? Satan. 
Satan plays checkers and he plays it well. You see it all throughout the book. I mean, you, you saw him jump Mordecai with his red piece Haman. You saw him king his red piece Xerxes. He takes God's people off the board one at a time, one jump at a time. He's smart, he's clever, but he's one-dimensional. God, on the other hand, is more sophisticated, more strategic, more complex. He has a multi-layered point of view. He doesn't play checkers. God plays chess. Don't you see him playing chess here? God moves Harbona. Just one eunuch among thousands of eunuchs at the right place at the right time to inform the king about the gallows. Just a little pawn on the chessboard that no one else paid any attention to. But God moved his pawn with divine precision. One of the key lessons in the game of chess is always keep your eye on the queen. The queen is to be protected and guarded. The queen is your most powerful offensive weapon and the queen of your opponent would be your most feared enemy. Keep your eye on the queen. A strategy that Satan failed to employ. When God moved his queen Esther into the palace, Satan was checkmate by the providence of God. All the pieces of the chessboard belong to God and he can move a queen as easily as he can move a pawn. God is the ultimate strategist. Even when it seems like he is losing, his purposes are fulfilled just at the right time. God has the whole system rigged. He's sovereignly weaving the stories of his people into his redemption plan. And friends, that includes your story as well. The chess pieces of your life are not being moved randomly. God is divinely governing your game of life. And I've read the Bible all the way through multiple times. I didn't even stop at Revelation 22, the last chapter. I went all the way through the concordance and the maps in the back. And here's what is clear. God wins. The only question is whether you're on Satan's side or God's side. Application number one, let's talk about chess checkers in the game of life. Application number two. Let's talk about Watson Watts, Haman, and the ultimate victim of his invention. Watson Watts wasn't the only one to become a victim of his invention. Neither was Haman. There's another. One who also became a victim of his invention. Or maybe it's better to say he became a victim of his creation. It was God who formed the hands that would pierce his hands. It was God who invented the body that would beat his body. It was God who created the heart that would stop his heart. We designed the flow of this service to reflect the movements of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation. Genesis 3 verses 1 through 14, you have the fall. Genesis 3.15 through Jude, you have redemption. We have redemption being worked out for us. Esther's included in that. Revelation, we have the promise of a new creation. God created all things. And his crowning creation, his crowning invention, human beings. Because of the fall of man, God had to make a way for redemption. So God became man. Jesus is not merely God's emoji. 
Jesus is God in the flesh. And by the way, God never said, like Watson Watt, if I knew what you would have done, I would have never created you. God knew to save man, he would have to die by the hands of man. To rescue you from sin, he would have to become your sin. And none of that was a surprise to God. It was all in his plan. And God didn't like Haman run from the gallows. He ran to the gallows. Watson Watts' poem inspired me to write one. Also entitled Rough Justice. Don't pity God who came down to man, even though he took the sin of your lifespan. For your pity he did not come. It's for your worship he was beat like a drum. He's the sinless son of God, but his creation called him a fraud. That man would kill him is beyond comprehension. This man died by his own invention. With screams they condemn the one who created them. From the womb to the tomb, they denied his claim and his name. He breathed his last breath, then submitted to his death. Until, until three days passed and then his heart started to blast. To the tomb he was carried in, but he walked out. Rough justice is the story of the one now clothed in glory. His death and resurrection in the Old Testament forecast, now to the nations we broadcast. Church, God's creation didn't receive him in his first coming. But his creation will receive him in his second coming. Joy to the world. The Lord is coming. Let us receive our key. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.